This is The Guardian. Today, a mother's campaign in memory of her daughter that will change the NHS. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I never feel I can do justice to my daughter in just a few pithy words. You know, it's hard to neatly summarize her or what she meant to me or to us as a family. You know, she was my first child. I worried all the time I wouldn't be a good mother or <laughs> when I was pregnant or I wouldn't, I wouldn't love her. And she came out and she was just perfection. <laughs> Incredibly kind and bright and joyful and fun and uh, giving the easiest and most temperamentally calm of the four of us which is a funny thing to say about a girl that was about to be 14 but she was she was just like that you know she'd sit around reading her books and she had a beautiful singing voice and she was an unbelievably original writer but mostly she was just lovely lovely person barely had a bad word to say about anyone Mary Mills is the editor of the Guardian Saturday magazine for the last two and a half years, she and her husband, the journalist Paul Leighty, and their younger daughter Lottie have been grappling with the immense loss of Martha from their lives. She loved her sister, and I know that that's one of those things that would have been a constant, you know, she felt great responsibility for her, and she was very protective of her. Mostly she just wasn't afraid to kind of do her own thing and stand out from the crowd, which again is a really... A difficult thing to do when you're a teenager and you know most people want to fit in and she was like oh, I want to stand out I'm gonna you know wear trousers at school and everyone else is rolling up their skirts tiny and she just was full of things like that and she had a real appetite for life. Martha was just 13 when she died. Shocking failures within an NHS hospital led to mistakes, to a tragedy that Merope is determined never to see repeated. She, at the time, was hugely into Marvel, because yeah. Marvel was really big then. But, you know, maybe she'd be over Marvel now. And I hate the fact I don't get to know, you know. And that's what we feel deprived of. You know, she was frozen in a moment. We just constantly said in the house how incredibly lucky we were and what a lovely life we had which um, now feels like a sort of horrible foreshadowing or attempting fate or something like that but um, yeah it's, I just feel really sad I can't share all the books and the films and experiences with her that, that I want to Today, the family's campaign 
to give patients the legal right to an urgent second medical opinion if they feel their hospital treatment is going badly has been backed by the government. In April, Martha's rule will be rolled out in hospitals across England. What will it mean for patient safety? And how will it work? From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, Martha's Rule. In the summer of 2021, you went on a family holiday to rural Wales. And, you know, at that point, we were still in the middle of the pandemic, going through these on-off lockdowns. What was the mood like when you arrived? Well, we'd rented this cottage that had no Wi-Fi or no internet reception, no, and um, it was at the top of a hill that we had to climb up through it to park at the bottom and take our stuff up in a wheelbarrow through this field of sheep. And um, we played games, cards, you know, we were painting, and it was glorious weather, and we had a lovely first day. We ended up in a pub and... Uh, ate delicious food and played cards as usual and uh, everything just seemed perfect and then we decided to rent these bikes the next day and we cycled this really well-known route totally flat family friendly and we went over this little famous wooden bridge and um, there was a bit of sand Paul and I went over it first and we both wobbled a little bit but we didn't think anything of it and the girls were behind us but when Martha went over it, the wheels of her handlebars twisted and the end, the sort of pointy end of the handlebar went into her stomach. You know, we thought she was winded, so we just sort of waited there for a bit. And, you know, after 20 minutes, Paul said, I've been winded before, she should be fine by now. I think it might be something different. So we went to a minor injuries unit and they didn't identify it. And and then, you know, in the middle of the night, she just got worse and worse. Um, and then we drove an hour to Aberystwyth and, um, you know, we were in there overnight and I thought it was a precaution. And then in the morning they said, you know, we think she's got this pancreatic trauma, which meant that the force of the handlebars had basically lacerated, you know, caused us a cut in her pancreas. Obviously sounds really serious, but at that point, did you know how serious that was? I mean, immediately that hospital said, we can't cope with this here. You you know, when they start talking about helicopters, you think, OK, this is serious. And so, you know, we went in a helicopter to Cardiff first. And then they told us that there were three specialist units in the country to deal with this kind of trauma. And one of them was King's Hospital in London. You know, of course, we were from London. So we said, let's go there. And that's where we ended up. Mary Pete. You know, that summer, a lot of us had gotten used to clamping on doorsteps for the NHS. You know, there were all those handmade posters of rainbows made by kids, taped on front room windows up and down the country. Including by Martha and Lottie and the <laughs> clapping by all of us, yes. How did you feel about the NHS at that point and were you confident about the care you were getting? Yeah, I mean, certainly at first, I could not have been more grateful to get these two hot helicopters. I thought, this is brilliant. I felt that we were being treated mm. right. And when we ended up at King's, it felt distinct again from the other two hospitals we'd briefly been in, the ward we were on, Rays of Sunshine. It was very well-funded compared to everywhere else. It had these, you know, instead of having a curtain around you, we had glass cubicles with sliding doors. And I'd been sleeping just on a chair next to her bed and suddenly mm. I had a pull-down bed and there was a kitchen. And more than once I said, 
we are so lucky to be mm. here. We felt we were in the best place and we were told time and again we were in the best place and we really believed that. And I spent my whole life telling the children, you know, how lucky we were to have a healthcare system like this. Take me back to Martha at that point. I mean, how did things progress? How was she looking? You know, she was obviously ill, but we were told time and again that she would be better, that she would turn a corner, that she'd be back at school soon. It was just a matter of time. Originally, we thought she'd be back at school by September. This was the sort of end of July, and if not, not long after that. At what point did you start to get really concerned, not just about what was happening to Martha, but about the care that she was receiving? You know, at first it was fine. Things seemed odd to me, like the consultants changed a lot. So we we weren't talking to one person throughout. But I didn't really start to worry until, you know, the fourth week we were there when she got an infection. She started to feel quite bad on the Monday. And then on the Wednesday... She started bleeding very, very heavily out of a pick line, which was a line that had been put in her arm to administer antibiotics and drugs and things. It was a lot of blood and it was scary for me and for her. And of course, you know, I was trying to act not scared. And I was just told at the time that this was a normal side effect of infection. And I know now that it was anything but. And that's the point when she should have been transferred to ICU and uh, all her numbers were pointing that way. But she wasn't. She stayed on the ward and then it just got worse from there. She was being constantly sick, retching up. She had diarrhoea and this raging temperature and she was scared. And, um, you know, Paul and I, we didn't know much about sepsis but um we started using that word ourselves saying you know why this is sepsis and we could see the weekend approaching which at this point was the bank holiday weekend of august and you know i actually said to the consultant that was on duty you know i'm worried she's going to go into septic shock on a bank holiday weekend and none of you will be here because the consultants weren't in at the weekend they came in for a few hours in the morning and then they went home on call and it was just a totally different atmosphere so you were you were raising concerns, you'd done the research, you'd understood more and more about sepsis. How were you treated from there? You know, we were reassured, and the reason I use that word reassured is because uh, afterwards, when the report was being written into Martha's care, we kept being asked this question, were you reassured? And we said, I think you're asking the wrong question here, because we were reassured, but we weren't listened to. We were wrongly reassured, but nobody was listening to us. So that was what was happening. We were raising concerns and we were were reassured. And, you know, because these are trained doctors with experience of sepsis who know much more about it than we did, of course we deferred to them when they said this. And that is difficult for us to live with. After, on the Saturday, Paul was told, this is what it's like with this injury, infection, has come and go. By the afternoon, she couldn't stand. She couldn't even get out of bed. She was so dizzy. 
He told the doctors, this is new. This is a new thing that's bad. They marked it down. Nothing changed. And then on um, Sunday, I was there and the new consultant came in and he whispered outside Martha's cubicle. You know, I was craning to listen. Nothing should have been kept from me. I was by her side the whole time. And if he was worried, the right thing to do would have been said, you know, I'm worried about her. And if anything changes, you let me know. And instead, they kept any concerns they had from me. And then he went home for the day on call and he didn't leave a plan for the day. Then in the afternoon, Martha got a rash which is like the red flag for sepsis. You know, everybody knows that a rash and an infection is a really scary thing. And there was a registrar who was there. The nurse called him in and showed him the rash. And, you know, I said, I'm worried this is a sepsis rash. I had to say it in front of her. And she looked scared and I, you know, I had to say to her, you know, I'm sure it's not, but I just have to check. And he said, no, you know, I think this is a delayed allergic reaction to an antibiotic that she'd had. And I was really suspicious of that. It didn't seem right to me. It was one of those moments where I just sort of, you know, I, I grabbed a nurse and I said, I, I'm, you know, I'm really worried he's got this wrong. And she said, trust the doctors, they know what they're doing. And I actually remember sitting down and kind of talking to myself and saying, yeah, you know, she's right. Trust the doctors. They know more than you. Just sit back and trust the system, which was terrible advice on her part and terrible, uh, a terrible pep talk to myself on my part. After that, we didn't see any doctors again. She got worse throughout the night. She was just drinking a crazy amount of water, uh, which is another sign of sepsis and deterioration. And uh, she wasn't going to the loo and she was drinking so much water. And I kept saying to the nurse, I th you know, think there's something wrong. She's drinking unbelievable amounts of water and all her observations, you know, the nurses come in and they take the heart rate and the blood pressure and everything. And they were all kind of off the charts, but nobody came. And in the morning she collapsed. She got up to go to the loo and she collapsed in my arms and it was only then that they talked about transferring her to ICU, but it was far, far too late. And, um, you know, we were told. You know, we were told within hours that, you know, she was likely to die. And um, she was dead the next day, yeah. Mary, I don't know how you make sense of a loss like this. It's an unbelievable tragedy and you must have had so many questions. You obviously had them at the time, but what did you do? What did you do next? Well, we lay awake at night and wondered how on earth this could have happened. <laughs> and we fired off about a million questions to the hospital <laughs> And there was a serious incident report. We uh, had a lot of input into the serious incident report. I do sometimes wonder if we were different people, <laughs> not, you know, articulate 
middle-class journalists whether we would have had the same treatment, but we had a serious incident report and that outlined a number of things that had gone wrong. And the one that stood out most was that there was a resistance on Rays of Sunshine, that was the uh, ward that she was on, to referring children to ICU. ICU was just next door. It was like literally the next door ward, next door room. But the liver consultants who worked on Rays of Sunshine, they preferred to treat people themselves. They thought they could handle the sickest patients and they didn't like to relinquish control. In fact, the serious incident report said they had often a dismissive attitude to their colleagues on paediatric ICU. So there's they're, a they're, level of ego yeah, and hierarchy Absolutely. They were, they were very high status team within the hospital. And yeah, they were known for their, to be dismissive of their colleagues in um, paediatric ICU. You know, essentially there was a resistance to moving Martha there, where with all her symptoms she should have been, and that cost her her life. It must have been devastating to see those failures laid out. The one that really sticks in my claw was that it's common, especially in children, that there's a guidance, which is if a parent is worried, you should escalate a child. And in fact, at at King's Hospital, that was a hospital protocol. And um, the consultant who wasn't there, um, who was at home on call, who didn't have eyes on her, he told the team that there shouldn't be a critical care review categorically Yes, the recording of the words, categorically, it wasn't necessary because I was anxious and it would only increase my anxiety. Um, So he went against the recommendation. You know, it's important to say that in this instance, you know, Martha's death, it wasn't about money. This was a ward that was very well financed because, uh, you know, they had, as well as us on the ward, they had overseas transplants, um, private patients who paid to be there. You know, it wasn't a case of them being overstretched the consultant he was on call he should have come in he got called twice and uh, he chose not to and you know there was a bed there was a bed ICU that was available that was one of the things that we we found out the serious incident report it, it outlined some clear failings and then there was this inquest in March 2022 into Martha's death what did you learn from that it was horrific and some of the doctors were incredibly defensive still, and that just makes you more angry. <laughs> they don't have to face you. They don't have to turn up. They can just dial in. And her ruling was that if she had been moved to paediatric ICU earlier, she would have lived. Did the doctors, did the team eventually take responsibility? Did you get an apology from the hospital? Yeah, the night before the inquest, we received a letter from the hospital legal team admitting breach of duty of care, which is essentially admitting it was preventable. The hospital itself has apologised, but some of the key doctors who were involved have resisted individually doing so. And I found that incredibly galling. Are there any consequences? There is a... GMC investigation ongoing into some of the key doctors, yeah. When you look back, what is your main feeling about mistakes that were made and the way that you were treated by the medics? Mostly it's utter disbelief 
that so many people could have done their jobs so very, very badly. And I'm afraid this is uncomfortable for people because we talk a lot about care and I'm afraid I don't think they cared enough. They didn't care enough about the outcome. They didn't treat Martha as they would if it was their own child. If it had been their child, bleeding, temperature, sick, diarrhea, unable to stand, they could not have shipped her to ICU fast enough. And, you know, I didn't understand about the hierarchy that existed on the ward where everyone was just pushing up and up to the next person and nobody felt able to challenge them. The weekend was an issue where... Uh, I think everyone was just thinking, well, you know, she's not better by Tuesday, we'll move her then. And that's not, that's not how deterioration works. It doesn't wait for your weekends. Merope, in September 2022, after the inquest... You wrote this really moving piece for The Guardian, published on what would have been Martha's 15th birthday. Can you tell me about the response that you got? There was a a very big response. I got a lot of lovely letters from Guardian readers, for which I couldn't reply individually, but anyone that's listening that wrote to me, I thank you for, thank you for taking the time. But it was also the first time I'd I was contacted by some of our readers in Australia and told about Ryan's Rule, which is this escalation system that exists in in parts of Australia and Queensland where a little boy called Ryan died, um, toxic shock syndrome, similar circumstances. His parents desperately trying to raise the alarm and were ignored and it, you know, puts power into the hands of patients and they can themselves create this escalation path. And that, that's where I heard about Ryan's Rule and some of our readers said, you know, you should think about Martha's rule. And that's that's really how that process started. And so you launched this campaign. Can you just talk me a bit through that? Uh, so we launched the paper with the Think Tank Demos, who'd looked at other similar patient escalation systems around the world. And I went on the radio and I spoke about it. And we just got immediate support from uh, the health secretary, uh, Wes Streeting, uh, shadow health secretary, and NHS England, and um, it was taken up by Henrietta Hughes, who is the Patient Safety Commissioner. She made some recommendations, and that's what we're now pushing through. You know, there were similar projects underway or thinking in place at the NHS, and it just suddenly became obvious to people that it should be done and could be implemented in hospitals in a much more widespread way quickly. And what exactly is it? For anyone who doesn't know, can you explain the nuts and bolts of what Martha's Rule is? Yeah, sure. So Martha's Rule is for patients who are in hospitals. It means that patients and their families or their other carers will have 24-7 access to an urgent review from a critical care outreach team. I'll I'll just explain what that is uh, for people that don't know. Critical care outreach is a sort of small team of people from intensive care who have experience of looking after really ill patients, they go around hospital wards like a roaming unit looking at patients exhibiting really worrying signs and they refer them if they think they need extra care. And currently in Mm. most hospitals, only doctors would call critical care outreach teams and Martha's Rule will make it available to nurses and crucially patients or their carers. So it's putting power in the hands of, of patients themselves. 
So essentially for people who are very ill, they have the legal right to a second opinion about their treatment that they or their loved ones can trigger by being able to call this critical care team. When it comes to changing how things work in the NHS, why was this particular fight the one that you took on? I thought it was something we could actually win. (laughs) There are lots of things I would change. There are lots and lots of things I would change about how hospitals are run. But I don't know how to break down the hierarchy. People have been talking about that and all the human factors that exist and cause problems in healthcare for decades, you know. So this felt, Martha's Rule felt like something that would cut through all of that, cut through the hierarchy and the weekend problems and just mean that patients could do something if there uh, was a problematic culture at a hospital. So we know, I know that the NHS is in crisis. I don't dispute that. It's in, in need of money. But we think that Martha's Rule will help in an under-resourced NHS, not hinder it. And that's why we want doctors to get behind it, uh, not respond to it defensively. Still, I mean, it sounds so ambitious and daunting, given that it seems like, you know, it felt like you and your family up against the government and the NHS. What were the obstacles you faced? I think that sense from doctors that patients would overuse it. I think that's the biggest thing to overcome. You know, doctors are very data-led people and show them the evidence and they tend to act. But in this, no matter how many times I say where these things exist, they're not overused. So you're showing the evidence. I'm showing the evidence and still there's an instinctive sense that people will call it all the time. So that that's probably been the biggest hurdle. And I think it's not that we've got over it yet. You know, I think we're only, it's about to be introduced to hospitals and I think there will be resistance because of that. Marapi, we've now heard that Martha's Rule will be implemented across England. It's a real testament to how hard you and your family have worked. How does it feel to see it in black and white? Yes, it feels like an achievement. It's not across all of England yet. It's just 100 hospitals. It's the start. And it's the hospitals that have critical care outreach teams available already. But we can't get complacent yet partly because there are more hospitals that don't have critical care outreach teams that we need to get it into and partly because we really need this is really just the first step we need to make sure there's buy-in from across the clinicians that uh, this is something they'll get behind that this is a number that nurses will push into people's hands and really make it happen and not just happen in principle but in practice. And so what will it mean for patients and how it works for them? So if you have any doubt that something's going wrong, if it's a situation as as happened with Martha, where patients and families are concerned that the patient, that they are getting iller and iller and they aren't being responded to adequately by the team on the ward, um, it just means that there's, there's someone else to turn someone who can come and have a kind of fresh eye and who who knows if if there is a really worrying situation it's not a way of um, casting blame you know we hope it will do two important things the first and most obvious is that we hope it will save lives we also hope the existence of Martha's Rule will do something else and that is change the culture in hospitals giving patients and their families more agency 
Do you think it will ease that friction in sort of challenging a doctor? I mean, the fact that the rule is there for them to be able to ask for a second opinion, will it feel like less of a huge deal for patients to ask for that? Yeah, it is really, really hard, and I know from bitter experience, to say to a doctor, I think you might have got this wrong. And you doubt yourself, and there's just no structure to say that, really. And, you know, it should be said that most doctors, you know, the good doctors in the world, they do listen attentively and communicate effectively and tell you what's going on and, and want to hear your point of view. You know, they're welcome to being questioned. That's what that's how a good doctor behaves. Mm. Um, unfortunately, there are a number who don't behave like this, as everyone in the medical world knows, you know, mm. and... Um, Martha's rule gives an opportunity for people to challenge that structure, but it will do something to encourage a listening culture. The thing I always say is that, you know, I felt I wasn't listened to on the ward with Martha. And if there'd been a number there, I know I would have called it because I had my doubts. But it's also possible that I might not needed to have called it because the very existence of that number may have made the doctors listen to me more carefully. Well, will Martha's rule be expensive to implement? And is there evidence that what it's asking for will make an actual difference to people's care in hospitals? So in hospitals where critical care outreach exists already, it's very little. We're just simply offering what exists for doctors to patients as well. The fear, the background fear, is that um, it will be you know, overrun, suddenly patients will be calling it all the time. And uh, in every example where something similar exists already in this country or in other countries, that's not the case. It isn't overrun and it sounds counterintuitive. Um, but it, the problem that most places have where something like this exists and that I expect us to have is encouraging people to have the confidence to call it in the first place because people don't want to overrule or upset their team which mm. is why we want to promote that culture change that I was talking about. And so will it mean in practical terms there'll be posters up across wards? Yeah and posters and stickers and yeah stickers on bedside lockers we hope and as I say what we really want is when people are admitted to hospital the nursing teams to be able to say this is available to you if you feel like something's going wrong you know call this number so I know I spent time in the um, kitchen of the ward that I was on I did look at all the posters and that would be there but it, it needs to be more than that it needs to be mm. something that has clinician buy-in. It sounds like a juggernaut you've had so much response and so many people getting in touch and I'm sure sharing lots of their traumas and lots of their very sad stories I mean what has it taken for you to keep going and to persevere and get this rule implemented and in some ways would be responding to other people turning to you? Yeah, it's a lot of effort. It's not just me, though. You know, I do this with with my husband. We do work together on this and we want to do it for other people um, so they don't have to suffer and have the horrendous experience we have had. And we do it for Martha as well. You know, I'm sure on some level we feel like we're kind of still parenting her, <laughs> still doing something for her. Coming up, practical advice for patients and their families.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Merope, what practical advice do you want people to take away from listening to this? It's very tricky to say this because we've grown up in a culture where doctors are gods and on some level you you have to and you want to believe that's the case when you're ill. You want to put your faith in someone completely and of course most of the time that is the right thing to do. But I want to add a small caveat that there are times that our trust in doctors should have limits. Medicine is like any other job. You know, they're brilliant, hardworking, caring, wonderful people in it. And there are also people who might be arrogant or lazy or complacent or competitive with their colleagues. So I just want to tell people not to be afraid to challenge decisions where they have concerns and to look things up on the internet. You know, a good doctor said to me, of course, it's, I'm absolutely fine with people looking up things on the internet. I want, I want to hear what they think it might be. You know, if you're in a hospital, I think you should have a single consultant, a named consultant who is a regular person that you speak to and can address concerns to. And you need to be aware that treatment on a weekend is very different. Up until today, I would have said to people, you know, if you think something's going wrong, shout the ward down. But you don't need to do that anymore. You can use Martha's rule if you think something's going wrong, because that's what it's there for. 
Merope, it's been almost two and a half years since you lost Martha. And I think everyone who comes across your story is in awe at how you've managed to achieve this incredible landmark ruling. I'd like to ask you about how you've managed your grief, the impact of such a grave loss, and how you've coped as a family. Um, well, you know, in the same way that it's impossible to put Martha into a few words, I think any bereaved parent would tell you it is impossible to adequately articulate the pain of losing a child. You know, um, in the first months, I um, sort of felt like someone had sliced open my body and uh, ripped and twisted all my organs. And, you know, the pain was so immense, I actually thought I might I might die myself. <laughs> and I get to the end of the day and get into bed and be surprised that I was still alive and then not be able to sleep at night thinking about everything that had happened on that ward. And then come up for air and you think, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, makes no sense. And, um, you know, you want it to stop happening to others. And, you know, I think part of being a bereaved parent is feeling incredibly guilty that you couldn't protect your child. And that has been a big part of my grief. Everything is affected. Everything has changed. Every moment in the house, um, everything in the past, all the pictures you look at, the present, the future, it all feels sort of twisted and out of shape. But, you know, above all, I think about life that she should be living, you know, in some ways. Her future was my future and was our future. And it just seems incredibly unfair. But we try and support each other, um, the three of us. This is my way, one of my ways. And, you know, my husband's wonderful. And my daughter Lottie is amazing. And it's just very unfair that she doesn't have a sister. Uh, we prop each other up. That was The Guardian Saturday magazine editor, Mary P. Mills. My thanks to her. The piece that I mentioned that Mary P. wrote about Martha can be found on The Guardian website. It's titled, We had such trust, we feel such fools. How shocking hospital mistakes led to our daughter's death. I'd also look out for Paul Leite's piece for The Observer, titled, Can I forgive myself for my daughter's death? Both are incredibly powerful reads and can be found at theguardian.com. And that's all for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal, and this episode is produced by Natalie Khatena. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.